When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Outside In is committed to journalistic rigor and transparency. To learn about the reporting process for this series, please visit windfallpodcast.org. Heads up, there is one curse word in this episode. Okay, on with the show. So, could you just uh, speak into that microphone for a second? Let me just hear how it sounds. Here I go, here I go, here I go again, girls. What's my weakness, man? Okay, then chillin', chillin', mindin' my business. I looked around and I couldn't believe this. I swear, I stare. <laughs> that was plenty. Um, what is that? Shoop! Salt and pepper! <laughs> this person with the absolutely fearless mic check is Zivin Drake. My name is Zivin Drake. I am a member of Local Union 56, pile drivers and commercial divers of Boston. We talked last fall, just before the beginning of the holiday COVID spike. We met up in a state park, but it was pouring rain, so we hid under a pavilion. Zivin and around three dozen other pile drivers were the very first American workers to be trained and certified to work on offshore wind projects. The union put the training together with the Massachusetts Maritime Academy and the wind industry to get ready for what's coming. They put us in survival suits and put us out in Buzzards Bay. It was like 20 degrees, wind was whipping, beautiful sunny day, but man, it was cold. The fact that she was one of the very first Americans to prepare herself for work in a brand new industry is perhaps unsurprising. I was always the only girl in a room full of boys. I was always the only female that played sports with all the all the guys. Most notably, there were no female hockey teams growing up. At the age of 25, she became an Air National Guard mechanic. Again, I was one of the only females on the flight line. Jets coming down, um, jet blast, air intakes, you name it. It's just a very dynamic, stressful work environment. After that job wrapped up, she was kind of bored again, looking around. So long story short, I was looking into the trades, and I found commercial diving. She trained to become a union diver, an underwater construction worker. They work on docks and bridge pilings, diving with radiation protection in the spent fuel tanks of nuclear reactors. It seems pretty much perfectly suited to Zivin's personality. Getting in and out of the water, I'm 110 pounds with a 30-pound helmet, probably, depending on the task, wearing 30 pounds of weight plus wetsuit, all the other hoses, attachment, tools, all of it. So it's definitely not for the faint of heart. And people took one look at me and they were like, what are you doing here? I'll show you what I'm here to do. (laughs) Kick ass. The work isn't always glamorous. For instance, she once had to do a dive to repair a wastewater treatment plant. 
diving into sewage. It's exactly what you're picturing, just tampon applicators and turds everywhere. Used condoms. But you get a paycheck. You do get a paycheck, and a a healthy paycheck at that. Back to why did I look into the trades to begin with. I make more money here doing now what I do than I ever did with my my degree. Ziv and Drake is with the Pile Drivers Union. Pile driving, as in pounding foundations into the earth. When the first towers start to go up off the coast of Massachusetts, they will stand atop steel tubes that Zivin and her union brethren buried in the sand of the continental shelf. So, offshore wind. Uh, How important is it to have the prospect of an industry like offshore wind on the horizon that's going to have, you know, a couple thousand structures out in the ocean? It's huge. It's an opportunity. It's, so it's not just the installation of these turbines either. It's the, the maintenance of them for the life, the life of the turbine. So offshore wind provides another avenue by which myself and my members can continue to put food on the table for the duration of our 30 plus years. From New Hampshire Public Radio, this is Windfall, a special series from Outside In. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. And I'm Annie Ropeek. There is a queue of about 2,000 wind turbines that energy companies want to build off the East Coast in just the next 10 years. 2,000 very complex structures, each as tall as skyscrapers, built in the ocean. And there are some big promises coming from the people who back this industry. Promises about tons of new jobs that will transform lives and communities. Those kids right there, like, they could have a future in wind. So it's like there's an open door for them if, if they choose to go this route. On this episode, we ask, can they keep those promises? Ever since Joe Biden launched his bid for the White House, he's been hitting a message that Democrats have been trying to sell to the public for years. I think climate change, I think jobs. That's President Biden at his first joint address to Congress back in April. The message is that fighting climate change doesn't have to be a job killer or a money pit. Just the opposite. It's an economic opportunity, a way to create new homegrown industries. In short, Jobs, jobs, jobs. Think about it. There is simply no reason why the blades for wind turbines can't be built in Pittsburgh instead of Beijing. No reason. None. Of course, there are plenty of reasons why that will be easier said than done. We're going to get into those caveats. But first, let's unpack what puts a place in the running to become a hub of this industry. Here's our first safe bet. The cities with the most to gain from the coming American offshore wind boom will be port cities, specifically cities with industrial ports where big cargo ships can come in and out easily, 
ports with deep water, room for massive, highly specialized construction ships. New London, Connecticut, New Bedford, Massachusetts, Quonset Point, Rhode Island, Port Jefferson, New York. All of these have been or are being considered as staging ports for offshore wind. But if none of them are places you've particularly heard of, there's a reason. It's because a successful wind port needs something else, too. It needs to be down on its luck. It needs empty space on the waterfront, vacant lots ready to turn into the specialized facilities the wind industry needs. So you can imagine, it's an opportunity, a bit like when sports teams offer to come to a new city for the right price. Cities fall over themselves to sweeten the pot. So let's say the whole U.S. offshore wind industry landed in just one rusty American port. What would that look like? We really had idle areas in the port. People were kind of out of job. We had a rough period of 10 10 years, I would say. This is Jesper Bank. He's the commercial manager for the port of Esbjerg in Denmark on the North Sea. And if there is an offshore wind capital of Europe, it's his port. Over the past 20 years, there were about five and a half thousand offshore wind turbines connected to the European grid. About three quarters of those turbines came through Esbjerg in some form or another. So we have been in the game from the beginning, and and that's only 25 years ago, right? Prior to all that, Esbjerg had been through a boom and bust cycle. Fishing was huge, then collapsed. Oil and gas came in, but didn't exactly replace all the fishing jobs that were lost. It's a familiar story for ports up and down the east coast of the U.S. Prolonged deindustrialization, then job losses. Infrastructure sitting idle, rusting. Esbjerg had empty space on its waterfront, empty piers, empty buildings. And it was close to some very windy parts of the ocean. Long story short, 20 years ago, no wind jobs in Esbjerg. Today, there are more than 4,000. Big growth, real fast. I've been following the U.S. market, obviously, for some time. And and um, I think you go through the same development as we have done in, in around the North Sea. But what we have done in 20 years, you'll do in eight. That's exactly what the Biden administration is hoping for. The White House estimates offshore wind giants could spend $12 billion a year, each year over the next decade. By way of comparison, in 2019, the value of all of the seafood caught in the entire United States was half that figure. The Biden administration is promising 44,000 wind jobs by 2030. And politicians, governors and mayors, want to bring those shiny new wind jobs home. Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, and Virginia have pledged to spend hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars to expand ports to host this new industry, meaning mainly storing construction materials, housing work crews, and launching the ships that will build and maintain the wind turbines at sea. For now, this is all very speculative because most of the wind farms in the pipeline haven't been given a construction permit yet. But we can take a closer look at the only offshore wind project the Biden administration has approved, Vineyard Wind. We interviewed Vineyard Wind CEO Lars Peterson three times for this series. The last time, senior producer Jack Rodolico and I met at his office in Boston. So Lars, if you wouldn't mind sitting over there. On the table between us was a tiny replica of the 62 massive GE turbines they're installing out on the continental shelf. The little rotor even spun and everything. It was a useful little prop, 
because we wanted him to walk us through this question. How do you build one of these things and who will do that work? Uh, so right now we're just clearing trees uh, on the edge of a parking lot. So it's not, uh, it's not the glorious start of a U.S. offshore wind that, that you might have uh, hoped for. It'll take Lars's company three summers to build the wind farm. Year one has already started. Clearing trees, building substations, all on land. Year two, summer 2022. Just one thing will happen then. They'll lay the cable, connecting the power grid onshore to the place where the wind farm will be built at sea. It'll take four months just to do that. Picture a huge ship with the biggest spool of cable you've ever seen. Four months to lay a cable, that's how long? It's uh, 35 uh, miles. A 35-mile-long cable, buried under the sand and covered with rubble to protect it. Year three, summer 2023. That's when the actual wind farm in the ocean happens. It'll be really busy out there. At one point in time in 23, you will have foundations being installed, cables being laid, turbines being installed, being commissioned, and then we work through uh, the 62 turbines in, in a pretty quick sequence, hopefully. This third year is also when things will be very busy back at the port city that hosts the project. The turbine components will be laid out in what looks like a massive empty lot, but is actually a highly engineered massive empty lot, reinforced to handle heavy weights and big cranes. So it all seems like a lot of work for Americans, but here come the caveats. Lars says some of the most stable employment in the wind industry is manufacturing, building the turbine components. So actually, the, the, the most jobs are created in the blade uh, uh, manufacturing. That's the most labor intensive. It's, it's a manual process. Laying the fibers is almost like an, uh, an art form. Vineyard Wind will install the world's most powerful turbines, which are made in France. So it looks like American workers won't do any of the primary manufacturing for America's first offshore wind farm. That's a big caveat. And here's another one. Look at the construction. Americans know how to do the work on land, but the work at sea, that's where our labor force falls short for now. In the U.S., we've installed a grand total of seven offshore wind turbines. Americans have very little experience with those jobs on the water, so they won't be in charge there. Not yet. It's almost like an apprenticeship uh, system. So in order to get to the supervisor level, you have had to do projects at a lower level and so on. So uh, since this is the first project in the U.S., you cannot sort of fully Americanize uh, the workforce. For the U.S., starting an offshore wind industry later than Europe means buying parts from European factories, getting trained by European workers. There will be years of projects in our future where something like half the benefit will go overseas. And nothing does more to illustrate how divided this work will be than this one particular construction boat. It's called a jackup barge. A jackup barge is a massive ship that lifts itself out of the ocean. The whole boat gets jacked up 100 feet above the ocean. It's basically a very, very advanced barge with a very advanced crane, and then it has four or six legs, depending on which type it is. It lowers those legs down to the seabed, and then, like an elevator, it lifts itself out of the water. To assemble an offshore wind turbine, you need a crane as tall as the Eiffel Tower. The crane sits on a barge out at sea and delicately lifts huge components, blades longer than 747s, and precisely puts them in place. 
That's not easy because the ocean is moving under the barge. So the barge has to be still. It has to come out of the water. A jack-up barge does this with huge towers, legs around its sides. Those towers are up in the air while the boat moves to the ocean construction site. Once there, it sinks those legs into the water, plants its feet on the stable sea floor, lifting the barge platform up. This gives the crane on the barge a steady surface from which to do its work. If you're having trouble picturing this, Google it. You will not be sorry. So the U.S. has some jack-up barges, also known as lift boats. A lot of them work on oil and gas drilling sites. But none are big enough to build offshore wind turbines. So Vineyard Wind will need to bring in a European jack-up barge instead. And this is a problem because of a World War I-era law called the Jones Act. It basically means boats that carry goods between American ports have to be American-owned, flagged, and crewed. So the European jack-up vessel will be allowed to lift the turbine components and install them. It would normally carry those parts too, but not in the States. Here, an American vessel will have to carry the parts out to the European lift boat instead. So for Vineyard Wind, two extremely expensive boats will have to do the job of just one. It's like a bucket brigade, a very expensive bucket brigade. You would actually not put them on the boat. You can't do that. So you can use the crane of the big boat to put the pieces together. What? Are you... I did not fully appreciate the complaint. You... (laughs) Where's that boat while the first boat's leaving the dock? It's just sitting out there waiting? It's just sitting out there waiting, and that's why that's not how you do it normally. You use... They are quite expensive uh, boats to have sit uh, waiting, so normally you don't do that. They carry their own goods. Normally, when you're not in America. When you mean normal. In America, yes. That will change. An American company has announced it will spend half a billion dollars to build the first American jack-up vessel big enough to install the massive new offshore turbines that are now being built. But it won't be finished until 2023. It'll be called the Charybdis. Which, can I just say, as our resident classics major, the mythical whirlpool monster from Homer's Odyssey, metal name for a boat. So that's Vineyard Wind. It'll create about 400 local jobs during construction. After that, to maintain the wind farm, run the power plant, as it were, far fewer jobs for the 30-year lifespan of this one project. And so the communities hoping to benefit from all this construction and long-term maintenance, they need a pipeline of projects, a daisy chain keeping their wharfs busy in order for the boom to really boom. This is, this is a tough industry. This is not a golden industry. <laughs> There again is Jesper Bank, the manager of the port of Esbjerg, the offshore wind capital of Europe. It's a city that's kind of the best case scenario. It was the first port to build an offshore wind farm in Europe, and then it became a funnel for most of the offshore wind farms after that. And even still, it's not so much boom and bust as boom and lull. This is still a project industry. You'll be very busy for 18 months and then there'll be a, a period of two years where you have nothing. And then, then there'll come a new project. Until all the projects in the U.S. pipeline are approved, if they're all approved, we won't know which American ports might wind up looking like Esbjerg or mini Esbjergs. One thing we can say for certain is that the first project in line, Vineyard Wind, has picked its home base. After the break, that's where we'll take you. 
Welcome back to Windfall. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. And I'm Annie Ropeek. If we agree that offshore wind will create jobs sooner or later in one American city or another, our next question is one of equity. Because the offshore wind industry is starting out with a uniquely blank slate at a time when inequality in America is so clearly documented and protested. And when the president himself seems ready to tie racial justice to economic policy and energy policy. And right now in Massachusetts, pressure is mounting to build an offshore wind industry that narrows the racial wealth gap. Civil rights advocates like the NAACP are making direct pitches to wind companies, imploring them to create an industry that is equitable from the get-go. So we wanted to see what that equity might look like in one place in particular, New Bedford, Massachusetts, will host construction of Vineyard Wind, which means it's the city that will launch the American offshore wind industry. Where's the first stop? Where do you want to go? Uh, let's, so let's that's go where we sent our senior producer, Jack Rodolico. He takes it from here. Silva uh, stepped off when she came to New Bedford from Cap Verde. But we're, along the way, we're just going to take a route. New Bedford is in southern Massachusetts, between Rhode Island and Cape Cod. And I went to New Bedford with essentially one highly speculative question in mind. If Vineyard Wind is going to be a windfall to New Bedford, what are the odds that it's going to benefit the people who have been most marginalized in this city? It's black residents. I brought that question to one person to speculate on, Dana Ribeiro, because she seems to embody so much about where this city has been and where it might be going. Dana Ribeiro was born and raised in New Bedford, and she has a history of public service here. Now she does community outreach work for Vineyard Wind. Also, she's a great tour guide. Oh, so this is Rose Alley. So the whalers would, the whales would be killed and then they drag them up. So this alley smelled like blood a lot, dried blood. So there used to be houses on both sides and women uh, planted roses to cover the smell. Really? So it's still called Rose Alley. No kidding. Yeah. It's a lot prettier than Dead Whale Alley. Exactly. We're going to go down this way. On just about every other block, Dana says hi to someone. Cops standing at a construction site. Hey, guys. A guy in a corner downtown. Hey, you. How are you? She pops into a restaurant. Hey, how are you? She hustles everywhere. People notice her. She's wearing this bright orange dress, and her heels click on the cement and cobblestones. Two large kachupas to go, so you can have it to take home, and some goofons. There's history everywhere. In the colonial days, New Bedford was the capital of American whaling. Moby Dick starts here. You're to look for a white whale. But it's not just whales. The city was founded by Quakers and became a hub for abolitionists. Go back to the Civil War. New Bedford is where one of the first all-black regiments enlisted. That's where they signed up to fight the Civil War. And uh, Frederick Douglass' son was one of the people that signed up. That's a... And Frederick Douglass, New Bedford was the first place he lived after escaping enslavement in Maryland. He launched his abolitionist career from here. Now, there's something unique about New Bedford's black population today. Overwhelmingly, black residents here are immigrants and the descendants of immigrants from a single country, Cape Verde. It's an island chain off the West African coast. Dana is Cape Verdean. Her great-grandmother came over on a ship called the Ernestina. 
What is the Cape Verde-New Bedford connection? Whaling, because the whaling ships would, that would be their last stop Cape Verde before they came here. And as they lost people, they would say, hey, anyone want to work on a whaling boat? And people would jump on. And that's how Cape Verdeans started coming here. And then, uh, you know... Cape Verdeans started immigrating to New Bedford in the 1800s. And they're still immigrating here. So for Dana, a tour of her city is kind of this jumbled mix of American history and very personal history. So it's about change from the inside. We're going to look at this mural. And this is my favorite mural in New Bedford because this is my dad, Parky Grace. Oh, man. I want to back so I can see him. Hold on, hold on. Parky Grace, Dana's father. His face is painted onto this mural of local labor leaders. In 1970, Parky Grace founded the city's chapter of the Black Panther Party. He wanted to get people elected who'd do something in New Bedford about poverty, hunger, over-policing, and sky-high black unemployment. Yeah. So your father's on a mural with Frederick Douglass. That is something. Yeah. Wow. He paved the way, in part, for his daughter. In 2014, Dana got elected to city council. She served three terms. So it was about making sure that my voice is heard, that, that I'm bringing voices to the table that wouldn't ordinarily be there, and making sure that I'm connecting people to opportunities. Just like in Esberg, the wind hub in Denmark, New Bedford has gone through its booms and busts. After whaling collapsed, New Bedford was a textile hub until that industry collapsed in the Great Depression. Commercial fishing remains a big deal here. For 20 years running, New Bedford has been America's highest grossing fishing port. But at the same time, commercial fishing has consolidated here. They catch more fish with fewer boats and smaller crews. Cape Verdeans and the city's other black residents, they've been here all the while. And no other community here has benefited less during the boom times or been hit harder during the busts. Dana brings us into Bay Village, a public housing block. It's a neighborhood where her grandparents lived. This was like all, like, you walk up and down, you smell Manchoup, you smell Gufong, you smell Galingazad. It was just, and everybody knew everyone. And it's the culture where, like, any adult can reprimand you. Worst thing is, by the time you get back to grandma, they've, somehow the word spread. The word got there for you. Yeah. Oh my God, you yeah. couldn't even, like, you, you couldn't even make in a park, we settle into a picnic table. And I asked Dana what she sees as the promise of offshore wind to a place like New Bedford. She starts to answer, but then this gaggle of preschoolers march down the sidewalk. They're just staring at us. <laughs> I know. Hey, guys. What's up, kids? Hi, Leah. Those kids right there, like, they could have a future in wind. So it's like, what are your interests? Because you don't just have to be a scientist. Like, I have zero science background. So it's about making sure these kids know, like, that there's an open door for them if, if they choose to go this route. So what kind of opportunities might be on the other side of that door, whether it opens for New Bedford's Black residents or its growing Hispanic population, or for that matter, what are the opportunities for any city that wants a piece of America's offshore wind industry? The biggest prize for a community is to win a turbine manufacturing facility. It's too expensive to ship these massive machines across the ocean long term. 
It's looking like Virginia will get a blade factory and Albany, New York will manufacture towers. On the construction side, there will be boom years for pile drivers, ship crews, longshoremen. Two cities in Connecticut, Bridgeport and New London, have signed deals to be major construction hubs, just like New Bedford will be. And then in the long term, there will be jobs for engineers, parts suppliers, office managers, lawyers, web developers, caterers. But there is good reason to be skeptical about who will land those jobs. The energy industry as a whole is very white. Reports about the oil and gas sector, the solar sector, really anywhere you look in the energy landscape, all confirm that black people do not tend to get these jobs. And it's entirely possible that the offshore wind industry will simply repeat that pattern. This is a European industry right now. So uh, they're coming here and they, there's so much in our country, like the foundations that, are, that have been laid to keep people out, you know? So it's a lot of times I think initially they, it was kind of lost in translation for them. You know, you have to educate, like they actually, the crazy thing is they know like American history like way better, way, dates, boom, boom. But it's the, the things that I know as a black person, like when I walk into a room, the, the looks I get. And so you're doing some of that cultural translation too about, Absolutely. hey, if you want to create jobs, um, here's how you do it in an equitable way. It right is, now. and Lars, our CEO, like he's, I mean, as they say in the streets, he's about it. He's like, how do we do this? And how do we do this and really do it? I don't just want to like play word games. Like I want to see action. Massachusetts is now requiring offshore wind companies to submit plans detailing how they'll ensure diverse hiring and channel economic benefits to underserved communities. But it's worth noting the state made these rules after Vineyard Wind won its contract. A Vineyard Wind spokesperson mentioned to us a few voluntary steps the company is taking to ensure equity. But we asked for details and confirmation repeatedly, and they never sent them to us. Um, I hadn't thought about this previously, but the way I'm curious now, is it easier in some ways to have these conversations about substantive racial equity with a company run by Europeans than it might be if it was a company run by Americans? Yes, absolutely. My impression, I don't know, I'm not a white American, but I think people get very defensive because the, when you bring up certain conversations, they feel like you're calling them a certain thing and they don't want to have that. Uh, but I think uh, it's, it is easier. Obviously, it's not up to one company to right all the wrongs to undo the deep inequity that's sewn into the fabric of a city like New Bedford. And any steps Vineyard Wind takes, those will be voluntary. So whether this company grows in a way that counteracts inequity or reinforces it will be up to them. New Bedford has so far landed two big fish. Vineyard Wind has agreed to stage there, and another similarly sized project, the yet-to-be-approved Mayflower Wind, is set to come after. 
But long term, if wind is going to be New Bedford's mainstay, the port will need a steady stream of projects. And they'll have competition. Cities up and down the East Coast will compete with New Bedford to win those jobs. And each of those ports has reasons a company might want to go there instead of somewhere else. Little details like the layout of seawalls, the height of bridges, and the depth of the harbor. Suffice to say, this industry is no sure meal ticket for any one place yet. It's a funny thing, quantifying the birth of an industry. The Biden administration estimates there will be 44,000 workers directly employed in offshore wind by 2030. That's nothing to sniff at, but it's not jaw-droppingly huge. More than three times that many people still work mining and burning coal, and eight times as many work in solar energy. Spread those 44,000 jobs too thin, and will they transform any one city or union or type of worker? That's the question. We'll get some steel in the water. We'll see how it goes. And then just one at a time. I can't I can't think about the whole swath of of water down the East Coast. We got it. We've been working on this one for, what, 15, 20 years. Let's make it happen. And then we'll we'll address the rest. There's Zivin Drake again. She of the fearless mic check. I want to go back to her for one more point about the big picture of spending on climate change beyond just offshore wind. She pointed out that climate change itself is going to be a growing source of jobs, whether it's jobs working to stop climate change or jobs helping us adapt to it. You mentioned that, that for your future, you were thinking about uh, sea level rise in Boston as being a, being a, a source of like uh, work. It's already happening, absolutely. It's not a debate about whether or not we have water here. When there's a dumpster floating down Congress Street because the seaport is flooded, guess what? The seaport is flooded. And right, wrong, or indifferent, that's all pile driver work. I'm, I'm a hippie from Vermont. I'm a, I'm a big believer in climate change and what's going on. Um, it's devastating, but on the up hand, it's, again, it's, it's money in my pocket and job security for, for myself and my people for ever. This episode of Windfall was written and produced by me, Sam Evans-Brown, and Jack Rodolico. It was mixed by Taylor Quimby, fact-checked by Sarah Sneath. It was edited by Erica Janik, Annie Ropeek, Justine Paradise, Felix Poon, Taylor Quimby, and Hannah McCarthy. Graphics for Windfall were created by Sarah Plord. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Special thanks to Megan Amsler, Jennifer Menard, Captain Michael Burns, and Joe Welch. Music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions, Ben Cosgrove, and Breakmaster Cylinder. Windfall and Outside In are productions of New Hampshire Public Radio, which is supported by you, our listeners. If you like what you're hearing, make a donation to support us. There's a link in the show notes or at our website, windfallpodcast.org.
you know what? I want to do the build of the ocean. I'm gonna I'm do, gonna go, go to the map for that. It's crazy. It's crazy to build something like that in the ocean. <laughs>